It's the Perry and Shauna podcast on the real life journey with you, reminding you that you are Abba's beloved child and that Jesus has called you into his massive mission to heal the world. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And that's what we're talking about this morning with Dr. Jeremy Grinnell about the Trinity, God being one God in a community of three persons, a community of love. It's really beautiful. It leads to worship. Dr. Jeremy has a PhD in systematic theology from Calvin Seminary. He taught at Cornerstone in Grand Rapids for 15 years. He's a Bible teacher, a fantasy novelist, a stage actor, a voice actor, and has his own amazing story of redemption. You can check that out at bellowingofcain.com. Talk just a little bit about being a fantasy novelist, my oh. friend. Um, well, that was sort of an accident. I wrote my um, <clears throat> I wrote my dissertation on C.S. Lewis, and uh, in the process of those many years of doing that, I, I just had this kind of epiphany. It's like, well, I'm writing about a kind of a fantasy author, or at least that's part of what Lewis did, and I've never written anything. How am I supposed to climb inside the mind of somebody who... And so I just started tooling around with some fantasy short stories, building a world just to, to see what how does one do this? Mm-hmm. And I began showing it to friends and they were, wow, that's, uh, that's good. That's good. Keep going, keep going. And I discovered I enjoyed writing. That's it awesome. Was, it was remarkable. I didn't suspect that it was in me. So what are a couple of your books to look for? Well, I have a, it's a, right now I have a three volume series, three volumes out, a fourth is coming. Uh, it's titled The Relics of Eris, E-R-R-U-S. That's both a website, relicsoferis.com, and what you might look it up for on Amazon or whatever. Um, the first volume is called Flight of the Sky Cricket. I, it's been reviewed as um, like a Percy Jackson meets Narnia. Oh, nice. So you have kids from our world, lost in a world of fairies, dwarfs, mad scientists, fantastic flying machines, prophecies coming true, and they have to find their way through all of that to get home. Hmm. So that's, uh, that's kind of the basic premise. And then the second and third volumes are return journeys as the story thickens and deepens. And Nice. So the title again of the series? Uh, Relics of Eris, E-R-R-U-S. All right. So the Trinity. Yes. God in three persons, one God in a community of love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why are you so passionate about this subject? Because this is something you really wanted to talk about on, on yes, radio. Yeah, you, yeah, you said, what, what do you want to talk about? And I said, oh, this is one. Um, in part because, like many, I was raised in the church. And, the, you know, I sang Holy, 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 you know, every periodically Sunday. And, and I knew the Trinity as a kind of an abstract concept. And it just sort of stayed out there. It was just sort of there in the back of my mind. And then in my doctoral program, I actually took a, I had to take a course on the, the theology of the Trinity. And we climbed back inside all the early church documents and read about the, the debates, Nicaea, Chalcedon. And we, just, we read the history. And, and I became just enthralled with the sophistication of the thinking of those early church fathers, that they were not ignorant people. They were extremely clever, smart, well-studied, well-read. And what they gave to us um, in this doctrine of the Trinity, this three persons, one essence, is some of the most sophisticated thinking humans have ever done. I mean, let's think about it. We're talking about God, Mm -hmm. right? So what words are you going to use that actually describe what God is like. It's an impossible task. Human words can't do it. And so you watch the church sort of struggle to come up with a right way to say this, a safe way to say it, an accurate way to say it, and to bracket out all the things we should not say. And uh, I was just captured by the history of it and uh, the the uh, the creativity and intelligence that the early church had to have to try to resolve what they were actually looking at in Scripture. Yeah, and so what is the the reality that God is one— 
but a community of love. How does that impact you personally, you know, in your, your walk with God? Mm-hmm. Well, it reminds me that, that God, that you know, we are relational creatures. God has made us relational creatures. You know, the, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God creates the, the woman and then the two become one flesh. And it actually tells us something about what it means to be human. I mean, even that language there in early Genesis, the two, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Well, what does that 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 multiplicity in unity is itself almost a metaphor for the Trinity or vice versa, that our humanity in some way is constructed to reveal or to show that God is multiplicity in unity. Even in, in John 16, where, Peter, where Jesus prays the high priestly prayer, his last night alive for his disciples, and he prays that they will all be one. How? What's the referent? As you and I, Father, are one. Mm. So this oneness that the Father and the Son have in eternity is actually the reference that Jesus draws for how Christians are supposed to love one another. Mm-hmm. That we're supposed to love and stick with one another with the same kind of tightness or at least an analogy of what God has in God's own self. And that's remarkable to me that we have the power to sort of mirror God's own nature by being yeah. human. The fact that we are relational beings yes. comes out of who God is. Because God is. Yeah. God, this, as you've said it, this, this, this trio of self-giving lovers yeah. who exist in all eternity in perfect contentment and harmony. And then God, out of an overflow of love and hospitality, decides to create creatures who, who at our own you know, weak, small level, can actually mirror, can be image bearers yeah. of that. That he has existed from eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, loving one another, honoring one another, praising one another. Equal in power, love, glory, and honor. And the reason we were created was for the Father, Son, the Spirit to share that love with us. To enjoy God forever. Wow, that's beautiful. From our good friend Chris, and he's he's asking about prayer. Who do we pray to if God is Father, if God is Son, God is Holy Spirit, not three gods, one God in a community of three. Who do we pray to? There's a little bit of a paradox here. Um, in one sense, sort of on the on the one hand, God is kind and generous and receives our prayer in whatever form it comes. I mean, we have Paul in Romans who talks about the Spirit sort of interpreting when all we can do is groan. So in one sense, it's a non-issue. It's better to just talk to God and not worry about this if the alternative is to not talk to God. That said, there is a theological reality that we can reflect in our prayers that would that'll take us deeper and let us think more thoughts about God, and that is that the scriptures seem to say that prayer is uh, is supposed to be, in this sense, offered to the Father, like the Father is the one who receives our requests and grants them, but they are brought in the authority of the Son. Because the only the only way we can approach God mm-hmm. is because of what the Son did. So it's mm-hmm. almost like we're, we have, we hold Jesus' hand as we walk up to the Father to make our request, and then the Spirit is apparently the one who sort of translates or makes it acceptable, makes it makes it a holy request, so that when all we can do is groan or stutter or we don't know what to ask, that the Spirit makes sense out of it and says better than we could. So you have a great theological truth of, uh, you know, our prayers in one sense are directed to the Father mm-hmm. by means of the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, God receives our prayers however they come out. Right, right. 
He's not nitpicking our prayers. Th- that's right. He's not like, well, don't pray to Jesus, you know, because <laughs> children do all the time, dear Jesus. And they pray. Yeah. And it's entirely appropriate that they do so. If the members of the Trinity are equal in power, glory, love, worthy of worship, and that sort of thing, then it's entirely appropriate to pray to the member of the Trinity that seems in best t- relationship with whatever need you have at the moment. That's appropriate as well. Yeah. So, Jeremy, the Trinity. Yeah. Why does it even matter? Well, yeah, that's a that's a great question because there are many things that are true but rather irrelevant. So, uh, yeah, answering the question of what not only is the is the Trinity, but why does it matter? Is is a pretty significant one? And I mean, there's a couple of answers. We've we've danced around a couple of them. Uh, I think the chief one is that it tells us about what it means to be image bearers. If we are image bearers of God, then it behooves us to know what God is like. And so we talked a little about the relationships of that already. But you also have things like um, how are you going to? What words are you going to use to talk about the transcendent, eternal, infinite God who stands over all things? I mean, what human speech is even safe? you know, to, to, to communicate. And so what you have in the teaching of the Trinity is hundreds of years of the church vetting language that uh, will accurately and precisely declare what the church means by who God is, what the scriptures mean by who mm-hmm. God is. And so it gives us that language to think safely and accurately about God. It also tells us um, a bit about what God is like and how God works in history because God's all of God's activities in history, the scriptures sort of break them down in terms of the divine persons. The Father is always imaged in scripture as the one whose, whose plan is being done, like the architect. You know, this is the blueprint. And the Son is always being envisioned as the one who accomplishes it, like the, the, the contractor who builds the house. Paul talks about Jesus as the one through whom all things were made, and, and John and John 1 the same. Without him was nothing made that was made. So Jesus, the Son, is the one who accomplishes the Father's will, and Jesus speaks that during the incarnation himself. I haven't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm not here to speak my own words, but what I hear from my Father. And then the Holy Spirit is always imaged as the one coming along to bring to completion the work of God. So after if we take creation perhaps as an analogy, after the Father declares, let's make a world, the Son does it, and then the Spirit comes along and fills it with life. Hmm. Uh, the Church has always understood the Spirit, the, the Veni Creator Spiritus uh, tradition, come Holy Spirit, renew the face of the earth, that the Spirit is the one that we credit with all things living and growing, and it's it, it turns the house into a home. I'm glad that you interpreted there, because if you speak in tongues, you have to have an interpreter, so... <laughs> You're being biblical <laughs> there, there. There you go. That's right. Well, that was Latin, so I mean, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it's okay. All right. So the Bible says God is love. Yes. God is love. If if God weren't a community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he would have had to create in order to love. It, it would be it would be an awkward conversation, yes. If And this is the difficulty. And you can see this, and I don't mean to make a, a bad comparison here, but you can see this. Again, I mentioned Islam having a very strong sense of God's oneness, but no sense of Trinity. And and so in Islam, you end up, you end up with a God who looks far more judgy mm-hmm. uh, because you, the sovereignty and the uh, will, the providential will of, of, the, of Allah drives everything. And Christianity has that, but also has a God who stoops over and clothes uh, himself in humanity and deals with our sin. 
Mm-hmm. So you end up with a level of grace and mercy because of the Trinity that is reflected in God's own persons because God is a community within God's own self. Yes. The God of the Bible is very different from the God of Islam because the God of the Bible can love because has always existed in love. The God of the Bible can have compassion because you need another. Because all that is within God's own self. That's yep. the language of community. That's why the language of divine community or community of love becomes so helpful and important because it's the, it's our connection point with God mm-hmm. that we know God understands. So when, when the biblical writers say that, or the writer of Hebrews, that he is tempted in all ways like we are and understands, that, that like Jesus understands where we're going. Well, that's not just Jesus because of the incarnation. God in God's own self understands thoroughly our communal journey because God is in God's own self, a triunity of self-giving lovers. Mm -hmm. And we are made in that image. So God knows us. And because of the doctrine of the Trinity, we have a better grasp of who God is and what God is like. Jeremy, let me just bounce something off you. Sure. Get your reaction. The core reality of the universe is love. Life is a love story that began and has always existed between Father, Son, and Spirit. That's a beautiful articulation of the the fact that these three persons live in a community of self-giving lovers. Um, Our understandings of love, of what constitutes love, what constitutes everything from uh, humble submission to one another in relationships, things like that, that's all drawn or is all grounded in the fact that God has gone before us Mm -hmm. and these things are present in God's own self. So again, that language of image bearing is not just a, oh, we, you know, we have a brain and a mind and God thinks thoughts, so we're like God. It's much deeper. The very constitution, the very fact that we exist for one another in relationship relationship itself is a reflection of the fact that God does. And God's love has always been other. It's never been selfish. No. It's always been other focused. In fact, some Anselm, the great church theologian, actually argues when he when he's trying to get why would God make a world? Why why would God do anything, right? Why why not just be God? And he uses the language of uh, like hospitality, fittingness. That it's a highly fitting that God should do this because God delights in community. And so it's per- even though God has perfect community within God's own self, it makes perfect sense. And it's exactly what you should expect from God to see God then create others with which to share love and community because that's God's nature. Yeah. God has always been washing feet. It, yes, in a sense. Because anything God makes is going to be less than God. So for God, by definition, so for God to bring anything into existence, it has to be an act of divine love and compassion. Yeah. And God has always been glorifying himself within himself. So his glory has been, the son has been glorifying the father. The Mm -hmm. father has been glorifying the son and glorifying the spirit. The spirit has been glorifying the father. Even that God gets all the glory, it's even other focus there it is when you want when you look at how the the members of the trinity are represented in scripture you'll find uh you know they'll find the language of the father is building a kingdom for the sake of his son and the son has come to redeem a community for the sake of his father and the spirit comes not to you know toot his own horn but to make christ known in the church so yes they're all in a sense more interested in the other than themselves which again is metaphor but it's beautiful metaphor so what i hear you saying is that there is no way we can conceive of god as a egomaniac 
Well, there are those who have asserted it. You know, a God who wants everything to bring divine glory, well, is God a narcissist? No, that's, you're right. That is not the correct answer. The correct answer is God's glory is manifested because that's just justice. God deserves it because God is that great and that good and that merciful. And we see that manifested in the Trinity. When we talk about the Trinity, there's this need for us sometimes to to make analogies sure yeah. and but we can get into trouble with analogies as well so just talk about the whole idea of the sure. analogy and well the good an- and the bad sure analogies are are absolutely vital for human thought uh, you, it's hard to think about anything without analogies. So if we did not have analogies, it, the parts of this conversation would be dark. But the difficulty is whenever you're talking about the Trinity, there's always – the danger is always to lean one way or the other. If you lean too hard into the oneness, you compromise the three persons. If you lean too hard into the threeness, you compromise the oneness and end up with three separate gods. And almost every analogy that we have will say something good and then stumble into one of those two directions. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the classics? God is like an egg. You know, you have the the yolk, the white, and the shell. Well, okay, that's useful if it helps you think. But that the the those are not those are three separate things. They're very separable. The mm-hmm. the yolk, the the uh, the uh, the white, and the shell. So what you end up there is three separate things. So if you press it, that would also be an analogy for three separate gods mm-hmm. who just happen to kind of coexist or come together to form God. And that's not what we mean at all. Mm-hmm. I have heard it uh, analogies like like me. I am a son, a husband, and a father. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I am all three of those, and yet I am just myself. So that's a three in oneness. That's a very helpful image. Yeah. And yet, in those are all just me, one person putting on sort of different roles. And we don't mean that in the Trinity. It's God is not just one being putting on different masks. Yeah. Well, here's one that I think is based in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And it's from Hebrews chapter 1. Mm. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. So I think right there, the Scripture yep. itself is giving an analogy. Absolutely. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. So the analogy would be the sun mm-hmm. being the Father, its light being the sun. And its warmth being the Holy Spirit. Yeah. What do you think? It's a beautiful analogy. And again, the, if Scripture is using analogies, that's a good, good indicator that we're on a solid footing to use analogies, that it's not a bad thing. We just have to recognize that when you're even there in that scriptural analogy, you have the Son sort of going forth as the radiance of the Father. Well, does that make – and that says a beautiful and important thing. But does it also mean that the Son is a creation of the Father? We had a person in the early history of the church during the debate who argued that. Arius is reputed to have argued that the Son and the Spirit were the first creations of the Father. So Mm -hmm. they're not quite God. They're just sort of manifestations or extensions of God. And we don't mean that at all. So do you see that analogy, though, it does – it carries good water – um, it does, it's not self-interpreting. You still have to come along and say, I mean this and not that. Okay. Here's another one. Sure. Okay. So I am three within myself. I have my thoughts. Mm-hmm. I have my breath mm-hmm. and I have my words. So my thoughts would be like the father, an analogy for the father. My breath would be an analogy for the Holy Spirit. My words would be an analogy for the son who is the word of God who became a human being. How yep. about that one? Also a beautiful analogy and says something very important, but recognize again, you have the language of the, each of those three are very separable things. 
like a thought and a word are distinct things. They're related, but they are also distinct. So again, the pressure would be if if someone hears that and thinks that that the again that the son is nothing more than an expression of the father, uh, mm-hmm. something that goes forth from the father, and not a distinct divine person, then the analogy has led us astray. Okay. So every analogy seems to do some good work and also have within it a peril. I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm going to get an analogy here <laughs> that you will accept. Okay. And and it will finish this whole analogy. Go for know. it. I'll take it. Okay. So, Jeremy, no, uh-huh. I don't have one. <laughs> well, actually, the one I have always liked is, is, is like, uh, uh, or others that I've heard, three states of water, solid, liquid, gas. You mm-hmm. know, so there's lots of them out there. And again, to the degree that they help us think this beautiful thought, they are useful. And as we've seen, even biblical. Just beware. No analogy is perfect. There have been times when I've looked up into the sky and I've seen three birds flying together Mm. in perfect unison. Absolutely. Turning different directions Mm -hmm. and just being in in perfect unity and synchronicity. Yep. And it's, it's like the creation itself says God is one in three persons. That's right. And again, we've linked back to what we started said before, even our humanity, that we are created for community as well. There's so many beautiful pictures in nature that help us reach these things. I do have a question from Stephanie, and Stephanie asks, talk about the tasks the jobs, I guess you could say, of each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. Sure, sure. There's actually a, a, a term for this. If you ever wanted to look it up at Wikipedia or online, something like that, uh, theologians use the word economic trinity. Now, economic simply means work. It's the economy, right? So when God does work, what does it look like? What's the economy of God's work? And we hinted at this earlier on that uh, there appears to be this um, div- a kind of division of labor within the Trinity. Uh, and the scriptures tend to speak consistently about the persons of the Trinity being engaged in different things. Uh, as I said before, the Father being the one whose plan is being executed. The Son is the one who actually accomplishes it, and the Spirit brings it to completion. Um, and you find that working um, in God's act of creation. You find it there in Genesis 1, as we've already looked at. You certainly find it in terms of salvation, where the Father has decreed, declared, planned, all that, the salvific thing. It's Jesus who comes and accomplishes it. Uh, makes it happen in history, and then the Spirit is the one who applies it to our hearts and brings it to completion. So you find all the works of God in the Scriptures seem to be discussed um, commonly uh, in terms of the divine persons in their kind of division of labor in this economy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for, you know, for me personally, it's thank you, Abba Father, for loving me as your son. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, living among yeah. us living the life I could never live, dying the death I deserve, rising again to bring me into the Father's embrace. And then thank you, Holy Spirit, for filling me and and giving me new life and breathing life into me. So this has real life. This works in real life. It absolutely does. In fact, the, the point is it should deepen our understanding not only of God but how to worship God because now we have we have language that we can now attribute faithfully to the Spirit and to the Son and to the Father. So let's just bring up real quick Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. They don't believe that Jesus is God, but I suppose they believe he's 
sort of human and sort of God. Yeah, there are, and I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, and I don't know, I'm not an expert, so I haven't done that. But you will find, and it's been said, and I have found it generally reliable, that most of the, the quote, heresies in the history of the church ultimately find their root in what, what happens with Jesus. Um, and you'll find that there are all kinds of ways that the that people kind of got Jesus wrong. Uh, you have a you know the Docetists that did not believe that Jesus was human at all, it was just God sort of walking around and kind of a manifestation of wasn't even really human. You get kind of a Jehovah's Witness approach um, where Jesus is not fully God; he's just a you know more of a great prophet, and so you have an emphasis on the humanity rather than the divinity. And the per- and the identity of Jesus suffers much the same. Um, difficulty that the Trinity does is that we're always trying to wander one direction or the other, too human, too divine, and we get um, and we get skittish by that. In fact, we were talking, Perry, you and I at the break a little bit about how evangelicals and Protestants, of which I am one, we have a tendency to like to talk about Jesus's divinity, but we get a little nervous if he becomes too human. Mm-hmm. And uh, the early church, interestingly, had the opposite problem because they had watched Jesus be human. They'd watched him hunger. They'd watched him thirst, hurt, die, all of that. Their problem was, how does this, how is this very clear man also God? So they struggled with kind of the opposite problem that we sometimes struggle with. Yeah. And one of the really cool things about the the series, The Chosen, oh, yes. is how beautifully they are showing Jesus as human. They're, Absolutely. They're very much humanizing Jesus. But I don't think detracting, I've watched it, I don't mm-hmm. think detracting from his power, his authority, his no, it's a it's a healthy corrective, I think, because we always have to be holding, we always have to be holding, like with Trinity, we always have to be holding this intention, God's threeness and oneness in a kind of paradox, and Jesus' humanity and divinity, likewise. Yeah. At the end of the day, for me, this just, it's beyond what my mind can conceive, and if I could conceive it perfectly with my mind— then God wouldn't be God. It's true. The church, to, yeah, when the church took the hardest possible position on the Trinity, it would have been easy to just have three gods. It would have been easy to just have one God sort of wearing three different masks. But the church took the hardest possible position. They had to try to defend a real three real distinct persons and one real unified single God. And when the church in uh, takes the hardest possible position, that's actually probably an indicator they've thought it through because nobody does that for fun, mm. right? So they took really the hard position and uh, we're the heirs of that conversation. Thanks for letting Barry and Shauna walk the real life journey with you. The content from the Barry and Shauna podcast comes from their live show, Barry and Shauna mornings on 89.3 Moody Radio, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Reach out to us by texting 800-968-8930 and please subscribe.